This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is VP of Operations for Bell's Brewery, John Mallett. Welcome to the podcast, John. I am super happy to be here with you. I'm glad we could make this work. We're here, actually, this is the fourth podcast in our history. We're 118 episodes in. This is the fourth one we've recorded here at the office. Oh, really? All right. Yes. Well, now I'm feeling even more specialer. Yes, you are. We, I, You know, I've missed you for the last year or two when we haven't done our retreats here in Colorado. We haven't gotten to spend some time together. I did see you last weekend up at the Big Beers you know, uh, Festival in Breckenridge. Um, but yeah, glad to have you here right here in Fort Collins en route out to, uh, Portland, Oregon for the hops conference next week. Yeah. Looking forward to meeting with all those hop growers, brokers, merchants, researchers. I mean, it's, it's, it gets pretty hoppy. I think by the, by the time this airs, uh, that will have actually already happened, but, uh, but only by a couple of days, only by a couple of days, we're going to talk, uh, about a whole bunch of stuff on this podcast you know, obviously John's written the book, written the book on malt. Uh, so we're going to talk about malt. We're going to talk about craft malt. Um, he's also built a very uh, specific brewing system for bells that, uh, I can't wait to talk about a little bit more. It is one of the weirdest, biggest, craziest, uh, production brew systems that I have ever heard about. Uh, he's going to walk us through why he has built it that way to brew the kind of beer that they beer, uh, <laughs> to brew the kind of beer that they brew. Um, you know, so we're going to we're going to get into the weeds a little bit with John Mallet here on the podcast. Uh, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. They're big enough to produce and small enough to care. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, if you uh, enjoy learning about brewing, I want to tell you about our craft beer and brewing online learning program. Um, go to learn.beerandbrewing.com. We've put up some uh, fantastic classes with some of our favorite brewers in the world right now. Uh, most recently, Corey King of Side Project Brewing, teaching a class on brewing barrel-aged stouts. That's learn.beerandbrewing.com. It's right there, uh, geared towards home brewers, but uh, I've heard from plenty of pros that are learning from it too. So, uh, Check it out, learn.beerandbrewing.com. John Mallett, thanks for joining us right here in Fort Collins at our, uh, our Craft Beer and Brewing office. It's a pleasure to be here. Ripping in, ripping through, ripping out. Let's talk a little bit about your history through brewing. You know, I mean, that's kind of where we get this thing started off with. Um, walk me in two minutes through uh, your arc of brewing history. 
Sure. So, um, you know, like many people, I was very interested in beer in college and, uh, I was living with a bunch of food and beverage professionals in Boston. And, uh, this is about the time when, when small brewing first started getting going probably about 86 or so. And I found out I was, I was sort of cooking my way through college and I found out that Commonwealth brewery, which is now long since defunct, uh, right down by the Boston gad in there. Um, would hire from within. And so I went and I got a job in the kitchen and, and soon after I got an opportunity to work in the brewery and took a big pay cut to do so, but, uh, but got in there and then very quickly, um, there was some staff turnover and I found myself with, with, uh, Steve Slesser running the brewery. Like, you know, we were in there for only a couple months and I mean, it was a, a shit show as they say, you know, I made some, I made some fantastic, uh, Flanders red, um, unfortunately we were supposed to be brewing in British styles and, uh, you know, like sure, look at that, sure. that, that pellicle. Um, so I did that for a number of years and then I went off to Siebel and when I got done with Siebel, I went on to, uh, Washington DC area, old dominion brewing kind of ran that program, uh, grew it up fairly, fairly quickly. And we had some fantastic brewers that, uh, went through that program and are still very active in the industry today. And then, um, I decided I'd start a company and I, and I went in a direction that I started building breweries. So designing and building breweries, I had a fantastic fabricator partner in Ohio. We had a, a equipment shop out there that employed a bunch of people, put in breweries and did brewery capital projects and could have reformed that, that business a little bit. And in the end, I worked on everything from, uh, you know, building a million barrel yingling, you know, oldest brewery in the country onto a never, very never heard of them yeah yeah um onto a you know incredibly automated uh very small scale like basically brewed uh like a, less than a keg of beer um but was you know measured in, in many dollars uh for for a large malting concern and then uh at one point i realized that i was not spending any time with my you know young kids uh and thought you know it's time to maybe get off the road a little bit and uh, at that time, Larry Bell came to me and had told me, you know, I'm going to build a new brewery and Mallet, you're going to build it for me. And I went there to do that. And I found that I just thought that the beers and the culture and all that was fantastic. And I've been there ever since. So that was, um, we were scheduled to move out of our Washington, D.C. apartment on um, September 12th of 2001. And uh, so that gives you a sense of when that was. Unfortunately, they wouldn't let us bring a moving truck that close to the Pentagon on the 12th. Not sure why. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ever since then, been at Bell's and, uh, you know, came there, built a brewery, uh, new production facility out uh, just outside of the outside of the center of Kalamazoo and have been operating that ever since. And it's been just a fantastic, awesome ride working with incredibly talented staff. So that's my, that's my brewing in a nutshell. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, how that development for Bells has uh, proceeded over the last few years, um, or at least the last decade, you know, over that time you got into working for Bells when, uh, you know, they were considerably smaller than they are now. Obviously, even over the last, you know, five years, Bells has, uh, you know, um, 
dramatically increased in uh, production, opened up new markets, and uh, you know, kind of ridden the success of these brands that you've, I guess, had some part in helping to create, uh, and you know, kind of built this broader success for them. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, um, you know, in that sense, designing beers that can be produced at a high, in a, you know, at this kind of level of flavor, and uh, you know, on the kind of scale that you do. That's something that not every brewery of that size is really able to accomplish. Um, and it says something for, for what you all do. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, when we're making beer at Bell's and, you know, I will tell you that, you know, so, so, so many of the great ideas spring from the the fertile pen of Larry Bell himself. Um, some of, sometimes those, uh, brewing direction might be, um, need some interpretation. Um, but you know, we've got the staff to do that. Um, it has been just fantastic to develop the process, uh, about how we make beer and, and the choices we make everything from raw materials, how they're processed, um, how we think about, you know, things like, you know, handling yeast and, and making sure that the, the beer just really, really sings. Um, you know, it is, it is absolutely a collaborative process throughout that whole team. Um, you know, and I feel blessed to, to work with such smart people, um, you know, on the end of, of, of how we make beers, you know, you think about, you know, when I think about beer, I, you know, we're really, we're yeast farmers, right? We're, we're really trying to, we're trying to set up a party that our guests are just going to rage at. And that is, you know, that that's really thinking about like, what are the, the primary things that, 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 that they need to be happy and to be successful and that we're going to be able to to keep that replicating that process. I think, um, you know, when I was in brewing school, it was impressed on me that, you know, you could make a great beer. Um, and, but if you didn't make it twice, then you didn't really make a great beer. You made, you made something variable. You know, people are are, going to go out there. They're going to reach for what you're making. If they like it, they're going to reach again. And if it's different, then you really haven't satisfied them. That's not the expectation. So how do we build in, the kinds of things that, that we can make great beers and make them really consistently. So what does that look like then for you? And I think you're absolutely right on that. There's this, there's the idea of creating a recipe, you know, and, and any chef can create a recipe and they can make that dish once, but you're also thinking about how do I take this idea for a recipe uh, and think about it from, uh, how do I maintain consistency in the ingredients year after year that are coming into this brewery from uh, disparate sources at times, you know, so that it be, still becomes the same thing, even though I've got, you know, malt coming in from, you know, different places, different people, different times, different seasons. I've got hops coming in oftentimes from different growers, even if they're the same variety and you know, different kind of terroir, uh, you know, and then you've got, uh, you know, yeast, which is moving through different generations through all this process. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that kind of maintaining consistency reflects itself in how you develop these beer brands themselves. Sure. So when I'm thinking about, you know, we're going to get <clears throat> beer as an output. And if we can stabilize our inputs, then, you know, we're in and, and the processes that we handle within the brewery to do that, then we're going to get a consistent output. Um, you know, when I think about the biggest variation, potential variation we have there, it's absolutely raw material. And I think that's especially the case with Bell's because, you know, as a brewery, we're very, um, I would say naked in terms of we don't use pro really like process aids or a lot of heavy process or, um, 
you know, it's, I really think our beer is absolutely at its best when, you know, as a brewer, you pick up the beer and as you sip it, you can practically see all the way back to the field that it came from. Um, so, you know, I think about, you know, that has everything to do with, you know, material selection. You mentioned that, you know, with, with hops. And I think about, you know, the hops in particular, um, you know, there's in addition to just the terroir, it's how ripe are they? You know, I talked, was talking to somebody the other day and was looking for a good analogy. And, you know, you and I both may both like bananas. But if I like my bananas with little brown spots on them and you're more like the, you know, fairly green banana, um, our idea of a great banana is going to be different. They could be grown in the exact same place. And, you know, eventually, you know, my banana was, was your, was your favorite before. And the banana you're eating now is, is going to be one that I like later. So selecting those pieces are really important. I think also about, you know, on the malt side, it's a really about understanding like function of malt, um, and how the individual variety expresses, um, like what some of those analytical measures that are in there are and then how that expresses and how you get out what you need as a brewer talk to me a little bit about uh, validation you know a, a brewery your size this is something that i find fascinating maybe only i find this uh, fascinating um you know but thinking about well, we, get, we get really nice comments back from our fans all the time i mean it's very validating <laughs> yeah you, you order these things and you know the you know you uh, know what you are expecting to come in but for a brewery your size you know a small brewery you get a batch you open a bag of hops they do they smell like you expect them to smell you know yes if they don't you know you maybe you throw them on the hot side instead you know for bells the the kind of volume that you're talking about and the truckloads of malt and you know the kind of quantity of hops that you're dealing with like i mean this is a constant thing and you know you're talking about large incredibly large amounts of ingredients what does that process look like for you all to make sure that the things coming in are what you expect them to be yeah so i think about you know if you're ta- thinking like you know i'm, I'm going to talk about centennial for a minute because it's you know a my favorite hop it's the only hop that's in two hearted um it's one that we spend a lot of time with it's um, the only hop in two hearted huh? yeah absolutely okay. if, if if there's a different hop in the beer than centennial then it is not too hearted and it would okay it would either kiss the sewer or become a new product. So, what or something. kind of centennial is there? I mean, is there a specific picking window for this? Is there a specific terroir that you have, you know, idealized for it? Yeah. So, like, you know, our our program, you know, I feel so incredibly fortunate that we have the ability to have the program that we have. Um, I will tell you that I think the we were looking at some numbers the other day, and I think that we were purchasing and, and putting into you know our beers about ten percent of the global supply of centennial. So, um, you know, I kind of think about, you know, when if I'm thinking about Cascade, I'm thinking about Ken Grossman and the awesome team at Sierra Nevada. And, you know, they sort of really know that op. And hopefully we do the same with Centennial. How we manage it, um, you know, we use a variety of both uh, merchants. So those are, are, you know, larger concerns that are going out and buying hops and, you know, kind of managing that. Um, you know, you think your Hazes and your Steiners and, and, and your, your hop union. Um, and then we also do some, some smaller grower direct stuff and that's not, uh, as, as large, but we think it's important to have those touches. You know, when we're out there, we are looking for a, a picking window. It's usually a little bit on the earlier side. And because we've worked with these vendors for so long, they sort of get it. So, you know, it's funny, there's, there's one grower that I love to go into and they'll lay out 
you know, these, these different cuts and we go in there and rub them. And then we finally, you know, we, we have this funny thing where we, we all rub them. We all take our notes privately. We sort of like, you know, stroke our chin whiskers or whatever one does to, to really think hard about it. And then on the count of three, we all just point to what the best lot on the table is, you know, like that's the lot that bells, you know, is what's going to, uh, meets the bells sort of ideal. And, um, you know, when we're all standing there and one, two, three and point and, uh, and at that point, you know, the, one of the people in that room was who had done the pre-selection. She's like, "I knew it! I knew it!" So like there, there was a real point of pride in knowing um, exactly, you know, what we were looking for. Um, and so, showing us the appropriate uh, material is really important. You know, from there, you know, we, when we buy hops, we we do it, and again, it's this kind of goofy way that we buy everything in bale form. So we're, they're raw leaf hops. We take all the bale information down so we know it's, you know, this grower number, this, um, this you know, lot number. And then we manage that all the way through pelleting. So we, we sort of privately contract with a pelleter and we send one of our quality people out to watch that so that, you know, it'd be kind of like going to the stock auction and being like, that's a good looking cow. <laughs> Can't and they're wait. watching it all the way through, getting ground up, and yeah, yeah, you know, well, well, you know, if you were like, well, that's a great cow, that's going to make great hamburgers <laughs> yeah. for us, you know, send us the hamburger, you'd be like, is that, does that, is that that same cow? So, I mean, it's not like we <laughs> sure, don't sure. trust them, but we, you know, we we're interested in that whole process of making sure that they're taken through there. So it's that those are things like making sure that that when they are processed, that the bag integrity is there. You know, uh, if you have air air holes or leaks or whatever, then it's going to cause the hop to not taste as good. So how do you make sure that's the case? You go there and you talk to the operators who are actually doing it, watch them. How often to do a test? Can you show me the test? Oh, this is kind of cool. You know? So, I mean, those are, those are some of the, the, the pieces that we've got in this, you know, in this pretty integrated um, and high touch supply chain for, you know, for that particular hop. And in the same way, you know, we're, we're talking about barley and, and turning that into malt in similar ways. You know, I have a, I have a pretty, I have, I have a very good sense of where, how, how those barleys move through those malt houses and, where the opportunities are. What does that mean? So, you know, for us on an annual basis, we will go and visit every malt house that makes malt for us. Um, and, About how many malt houses is that? Um, so we do, and this is for, you know, for, for larger, you know, we're not, we're not going to every foreign, you know, foreign or, or sure, place that we're sure. getting like a couple bags from. Um, but we'll drive out to one, two, three, four, five, six. I think it was six malt houses, seven malt houses last year and walk that process through. And, you know, I've actually, you know, the funny thing is um, I recently, I recently went to the Dice Dojo in Chicago, which is like a Dungeons and Dragons place. And I bought myself a set of die. So there's like, you know, the common six sided, but there's also like a four sided and a 10 sided, and a 12 sided and. And I did that because I want to take a look at a random part of the brew house or of the, of the malt house. I guess the malt house is really just an extension of the brew house. Uh, so I want to take a look at the a random part there. And so we'll say, hey, we want to look at under what they call the sub compartment. We want to look underneath where the germination is. And that's like a place that you know, can be more difficult to clean. You know, it gives you a real good sense as to, you know, how they're doing. Are they, are they paying attention to it? There have been times when you find some stuff that you're like, WTF. But 
for the most part, you know, what that does is it, you know, it signals to the, to the, to the maltster and, and to the people who are working in the malt house every day, Hey, we're really paying attention to this. So going in there and understanding like, you know, so this, your, your, your malt house is worst nightmare. Is that what you're saying? I don't know that we're the worst nightmare. I mean, I heard some pretty, pretty fun right. stories when I was, uh, you know, earlier of, of, um, of, uh, there was an old thing where you would get like a, a loaf of wonder bread back when there still was wonder bread, like just spongy, nasty wonder bread, white, white, white. And you take that through the malt house and you find some black mold and you take that wonder bread and you wipe it down. And then you, then one would supposedly present it to the say plant manager and say, would you eat that? And supposedly the correct response was, yes, I will eat that now. <laughs> like, so, you know, that's, you know, is, is sanitation being paid attention to? Yeah, absolutely. So those are the kinds of things we want to look at, you know, you don't want nasty stuff going on. And, you know, again, the, with the you guys are making, you know, this, there's the food safety aspects to what beer makers are making is, is there. And it is important. Obviously alcohol will, generally kill that you know and at the end thing it's not going to be a toxic thing but having said that if you start cleaner and you can end you know in a place that you're much more happy with and that's certainly not things that not the kind of stuff you want in your process along the way no i mean you want to you i mean you really want to have a good i mean i really want to have a good sense as to what's happening there and that you know again you know it's interesting that in in you know in germany when you you, you take your diploma it's your diploma in in, in malting and brewing they are all just one process it's there's a there's a, a, a physical and a temporal um dislocation but it's really all the same process of turning barley into malt into beer that's it's all the same so what's that extension that's an extension of my brew house i like to keep the brew house clean the malt house should be clean Let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, but first, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you'd want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, did you know the breweries that serve food see an increase in revenue of 1.8x? Second Kitchen is a food tech startup that connects local breweries to iconic neighborhood restaurants to help provide your brewery with food experiences to keep customers in your taproom longer. Second Kitchen provides the technology, support, custom menus, and more, all at no cost to your brewery talk to me a little bit on this uh this small piece now we've talked about the, the kind of quality and you know how you um you know evaluate some of your suppliers um talk to me now a little bit about you know even thinking about hoppy beer how you are building an idea of character and malt around this you know i think this is something that every brewer is trying to face you know as they are building you know beers with all of these components you know big yeast flavors big hops flavors um you know it's it's very easy for that malt component to kind of get lost in the shuffle um Talk to me a little bit about how you work and how you think about um, building that kind of character and malt without some of, uh, you know, what we now know about oxidative effects of, of, you know, caramel malts, you know, particularly in hoppy beers. 
Sure. So if I think about, you know, when I'm thinking about malt, um, you know, I really want to think about what the end state of the beer is. And, you know, if we're making all malt beers, then, you know, we're doing really two things. We're, we're you know, in, in, in malt, we're, we're both servicing the needs of people in terms of making flavor and alcohol. Um, but we're also servicing the needs of the yeast, which is, which are making so much flavor and, you know, especially in, in hoppy beers. Um, so we want to present the right buffet for that wild party that we're about to throw. And that buffet um, needs to be well-balanced. Um, when I think especially about the way that malt um, – you know, what we're getting out of there, we're getting both carbohydrates. So, you know, sugars, both fermentable and unfermentable, but we're also getting all these proteins and those proteins are broken down into, you know, amino acids. So we've got our free amino, uh, free amino nitrogen, FAN. These are, are scraps, but they're, but they're food. And if we overfeed that, then we're going to get beers that are not as stable. They, you know, we're going to do, the yeast is going to want to grow in different ways. So really thinking about how do I set the table so that we've got the right balance of fermentable, non-fermentable and fan is, 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 you know, sort of where this starts. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, I did some, some work a while ago where I was looking into malt specifications. And if you look at like, say Belgian malt specifications, um, you know, there are all malt brewers over there that are making these beers that, um, you know, have, have got very, very low protein levels and you know, when the, when the barley's grown, the barley grows and it puts on both carbohydrates and also proteins. And then as we go through the malting process, some of those proteins are broken down into the free amino nitrogen. So the, the fan that carries through to beer. So we could end up with a beer, we could end up with a barley that's got, um, you know, a moderate level of protein. But when it's fully modified, when that malt is fully gone to expression, um, a greater or lesser percentage of it is actually going into solution. And, you know, one of the great, the tale of two, the tale of two barleys is um, that you could, you can fully, you could have something where you've got a fairly high amount of protein to start with and a very, and a, and a higher percentage of it that goes into that free state. So at that point you're like high and high, or you could have something that's lower and has got the lower percentage. And if you look at, um, you know, the, the, the malt specification that I really, that you really see this in is called the Kolbach index. And that Kolbach is soluble protein over total protein. And it can range anywhere from say 37, 38% on up to the mid fifties. Um, American brewers have, you know, over time as we made these uh, adjunct lager beers, you know, very big, they've gone towards greater and greater levels of fan. It also, that fan level is also uh, corresponds with a higher level of enzymatic activity as well. So if you were looking to drive a mash that had a high percentage of another, you know, an adjunct carbohydrate that, um, you're going to have enough enzyme in there to 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 con fully convert these other um, these other extract sources, and in the end, you know, if it's a fifty percent adjunct, you could have two hundred percent of the fan, and it would be the same as if you had that that all malt beer at that lower 
uh, Kolbach or lower, lower fan level um, with the European malts. So trying to get the mix together of you know what we're looking for is important uh, to get the you know the, to to get that beer in balance, and that has everything to do with barley variety. You know those barley varieties. Um, do have different levels of of of, of uh, Kolbach when they're fully modified, and so f- knowing, understanding what the variety you're buying or what the maltster is giving you is important. And you know, oftentimes there's a blend, but to be able to read a malt analysis and to see like how this malt's going to perform in the brew house, it's absolutely critical. You know, the analogy I use for this is, um, you know, I'll ask the the, the faithful listener. I have a 60 pound dog. Is she overweight? And your, your next question is, sure, sure. It's like, what's, you know, so, so if you're looking at this malt spec right. and you're like, is this, is this Kolbach? Okay. Well, what's the variety, you know, 60 pound, 60 pound, uh, Pomeranian. Not so good. <laughs> uh, these are, you know, uh, we we start talking about such strange and small numbers when we start talking about, you know, that it, it, for normal brewers, that becomes a hard thing to wrap heads around. Like, um, you know, and you know, you're also talking about differing levels of efficiency, depending on how you're brewing and, you know, what format you're approaching this through. It's almost too much math, you know, for, for some normal folks. Is there a way that you can kind of simplify the, the thinking around this? Well, I think that, you know, if I'm, if I was operating, you know, as a, as a fairly small brewery and, you know, it's clearly, you're not going to, you know, march up to your malt supplier and say, you know, here's the blend I, that you need to provide to me. But just having that conversation about, you know, how sort of, sort of how hot or how, you know, modified that malt is or what, what sh- it should look like. Uh, and most importantly, even like, what's the blend? I mean, are you, you know, assuming so you're blend some, of, of barley varieties yeah. in any kind of batch they might deliver to you? Sure. Yeah, it might be, you know, some, you know, some Conlon, some Metcalf, some whatever, uh, you know, all coming together there. So if, if that's changing, that's, that's important. And you, you know, again, you don't need to control it, but you just need to understand like, you know, is there a change? What's happening? You know, in a crop year. You think about a crop year where we've got. Are you some, saying, John, it's not just all like two row pale barley, and that there's all of this other variety within everything that everyone is getting? It's like white people—they're all the same. That's <laughs> true. White people are all the same. Yes, you and me, brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so from your, what is that kind of range then? You know, you know, and some of these barley mixes and these barley varieties that we're seeing now, now grown and then moving through the kind of, you know, the world of, uh, of maltsters, uh, what is, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, from your perspective, having, uh, you know, driven, driven, uh, dived in deep on this kind of thing. Yeah. So I think that, you know, well, I think the, 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 you know, the largest place that we ever see this is when we start utilizing um, continental and English varietals. And, you know, if you think about how much adjunct beer is brewed in Germany under the Einheitsgebot, right? So those barleys are set up to be different. You think about an older variety, something like Barca or something like this, you know, these barleys are different than, you know, this supercharged, um, enzyme machine coming out of, you know, the Canadian prairies. Right. Um, and I, again, I think about the you know those those varieties, and I I, I, I hesitate to call something like Maris Otter old because 
Maris and Ardor and I are about the same age, but uh, so you know that modern that modern variety called Maris Otter St- still in your prime. Absolutely. Um, so these these barley's are fundamentally different, you know. So so you know I think as as any brewer who has played it all, and, and you know, this is by far most brewers have played it all with different barley varieties. You know that Maris Otter handles differently than you know your your X Y or Z modern American malt. In what way? Well, I think that the Maris Otter, you know, I think in a couple ways. The first way that I think you see that is that the Maris Otter just tends to be handled differently over there. They are killing it for more flavor. They're allowing that flavor to come up. They're not looking to make something that, you know, you know, makes water look dark, right? So, so therefore, you know, color and flavor are inexorably linked. So, number one, you know, if we're, if we're buying Maris Otter, we're seeing something that is you know, got got more more color and more flavor to it. It also has, um, you know, I think about the modification, allowing that that malt to maybe it modifies out just a little bit differently, a little bit more um, when when you know it's fully ready, and therefore it just tends to release extract easily. It's a super easy barley to 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 brew with. You know, the the problem with it is that it's expensive, and the reason why it's expensive is it's an older variety and. It doesn't have the, you know, for the farmer, if they're farming a hectare of land, they're just not going to get as much out, you know, physically, the mass is not going to come out. So, so as we as a brewer make that choice and decision, it's a great choice and decision, but it's going to cost a little more. And that's, you know, that's important to know. So we're going to, you know, we see, I think that these varieties, we see some different flavors. Could we look to a modern uh, variety that maybe has been bred now, you know, moving swinging back towards uh optimization for all malt use and to build some flavors that are similar yeah absolutely are there some of those that are out there on the market right now and barley varieties now being developed and grown in the u.s that you find uh, offer some of those flavor opportunities at say a higher yield per acre that allows for the agronomics of the whole piece to to be more attractive to maltsters you know and, and result in a better aggressive price for you all as a brewer yeah, I think about some of the varieties that are being played with right now. You think about the great work that Pat Hayes out of Oregon State University has been doing um, with things like Full Pint. Um, these are barleys that are bred much more for flavor, and they're utilizing some of that genetic stock. I will tell you that you know you wish you could flip the switch and say, like, here's where we're going, and let's get it there tomorrow. The process of developing, um, assessing, commercializing, and getting up to, to appreciable volume – for a given barley variety is every bit of 10 years and maybe a little bit more. So it's a big battleship to turn. Uh, it's slow moving, um, but it's definitely moving. I look at the, you know, some of the other varieties that are being brought over right now, things like, um, you know, from Europe, things like, uh, I've been always been a big proponent of Propino, uh, Violetta, I think has some pr- pretty interesting stuff happening with it. Let's talk a little bit about craft malt. I mean, I know this is, uh, you know, something that's on the mind of quite a few craft brewers, um, the idea of brewing with malt that is at least regionally grown or locally grown um, helps tell this story of craft beer in terms of local ingredients and it speaks to them. Uh, you know, obviously the challenge in that is, you know, depending on where you are in this country is building, you know, uh, finding these varieties that work on that kind of agronomic level with that you know, makes sense for the farmers that can yield enough that also produce flavor that also then, you know, convert 
convert in a brew house. I mean, it's a whole bunch of factors that have to align to help some, you know, to make this kind of thing work. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, from your perspective, how that is going in, a, in America right now. I, you know, there's such interesting stuff happening there. Um, I do think that that hyper-regionalism, being able to say like, all of this, all of these materials for this beer came from this, you know, defined locus is fantastic. Um, you know, there are certainly challenges there. You know, I think back, you know, Michigan was a really big barley growing state at one point. And then that, you know, by and large just left. Um, at Bell's, we bought a, we bought a barley farm. I don't know. It was every, every bit dozen years plus ago. And we ran that for many years and we found out a couple things. Uh, one that we really- bought a barley farm. Oh yeah, yeah, had, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that had- like a Matt Damon movie? Like we bought a. F- oh wait, that's, <laughs> that's we bought a zoo. Never mind. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, the things that we found out are one that uh, we're not very good farmers. <laughs> for, um, and that yeah, you know, yeah. nature is fickle. And um, so the you know, as we would take and, and manage this, and we had, um, I'm sure the Matt Damon uh, film was probably an up uproarious uh, you know cavalcade of mistakes. And uh, I think we had all of that and more. You know, you name it. <laughs> it was, but um, and then you know, you, you take that, and then you then you then you have that that focus of then turning that raw material barley into malt and that's a whole different challenge I, you know michigan we've got some really cool stuff happening right now you know if you go up in the traverse city area there's a couple malt houses up there um that are doing some pretty interesting stuff um you know allison bab out at uh, empire you know she's got this little salad in box and it's you know it's really kind of lovely to see all this um, and, and making pretty interesting malts. Now, do the malts look different than they do if they were coming from, you know, the high dry areas of, uh, of Idaho? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, boy, if you're in the Traverse City area and you have the opportunity to drink beer that all those ingredients were drawn from within 20 miles, that's a fantastic story. You know, you work with these from time to time. And I, I you know, I remember uh, a number of years ago, when we came up to the Brewers Retreat, you had grabbed a bag of Troubadour malt from right here in Fort Collins to mm-hmm. to make some. You know, we were brewing fifteen gallon batches, so it was a small kind of thing. Um, but you, you know, kind of walked through that process of kind of tasting and trying to understand this malt. You know, for brewers that want to kind of play in this field, what uh, you know, what what should their process look like as they are evaluating these malts and moving beyond just that spec sheet and trying to figure out what this is going to do in their beer. Yeah, I think first and foremost with, you know, when we're talking about malts, specs are pretty cool. You know, one of the best pieces of, you know, of, of assessment kit that's out there is your senses. You know, looking at it, smelling it, chewing it, and, you know, chewing it, is, which is different than tasting it, but tasting it. And when I say chewing it, like if you put that in your mouth and it's got sort of hard ends, steely ends, that's an indication that that barley maybe isn't fully modified. So even just that physical act of chewing is important. Um, you know, it's a, years ago I was doing some work with the Cicerone program and I would lay out these different materials for them to assess. And there would be people who kind of stick their middle finger in there or their index finger in there and kind of stir it around and kind of look at it and kind of tell me, you know, like, I said, could you, could you tell me about this malt? And they'd kind of stir there. <laughs> all, all I wanted to do was just you know, like, put it in your mouth. Put it in your mouth. Chew it, man. Come on. It's all there. Um, so, I mean, j- just, you know, just tasting it, I think, is is super important. And, you know, 
the, these yeah. are the tools yeah. that that you know that brewers used for the first nine thousand nine hundred years, right? It's like somehow, somehow in the last hundred, we've decided that you know the the machine's much smaller than I am. I don't think so. <laughs> So taste, you know, evaluation, um, you know, are there other kind of, you know, keys to these kinds of things that, uh, you know, that could help a brewer uh, evaluate past that just, you know, kind of sensory level on this? Well, I think, you know, again, having that conversation with the maltster, understanding it, taking a look at different lots and looking at um, some of the analytical yeah. Even making sure that there is analytical done, um, we'll tell you. You know, is this consistent? And you know, again, I'll hark back to the statement earlier about the need for us to make consistent beer. Really hard to make to put different things in and get the same thing out. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about uh, um, your approach to building a you know production at Bell's. Sure. You mentioned that Larry Bell wanted to build a new brew house back in two thousand one, and and you know, brought you on board to do that. You went about this in a rather unconventional way compared to, um, you know, typical systems for brewing and have built a very specific, uh, brew house for bells that brews in a way that you wanted to brew for the brew, you know, the beers that bells makes. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, that process of thinking about the, you know, what the production is and building, you know, that kind of capital infrastructure in order to make those beers. Yeah. So when you walk in the brew house at Bell's, it really, you know, there's, there's a real story there that gets just told visually. And, you know, the the way this kind of came about was when we were building the brewery out, you know, Larry has always been a very, very capable business person. And when he got together the, the money to put this, you know, to build this brewery, you know, when we were brewing at Bell's, we were under 30,000 barrels. Larry, what do you want to brew? Says, well, you know, what do we want to build this new brewery for? He says, well, you've got, you know, this chunk of money. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was, you know, a good chunk of money. Um, and I want to be able to make 60,000 barrels. And okay, well, that's going to be a stretch. But, you know, coming the work I did at Yingling, when we built out the brewery at Yingling, we used a lot of, um, I would, you know, some people would call it used. Some people would call it pre-owned. I call it pre-trouble shot. Cause you know, <laughs> so, you know, finding, going out there and finding this equipment that, that um, battle, battle tested. Yes, exactly. You know, you know, it's going to work cause it worked somewhere once before. Um, so w- what I did when we built that brew house, I went out looking for, for, brewing equipment and originally in the mid 80s or late 80s um wolfgang puck built a brewery down in los angeles and that thing operated for a few years it was called eureka it was you know brewery before its time but you know about the time of like the whole rodney king you know terrible riots that occurred then like this thing closed down the whole thing got packed up and got got anheuser-busch ended up buying it and they put it away in a warehouse in Joliet, Illinois, like a million square foot, just weird warehouse. And somebody clued me into it. I went down there and took a look at it. And it felt a lot like, you know, that final scene. It feels scene. like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like opening up these crates. Yeah. I'm like, what yeah. is this? And it was, I mean, it was really well cared for, like put together, put, put away well. And it was a Steinecker brew house, which was, you know, at the time there was only a couple of them. There oh, was, man. The other one was was uh, Red Hook had the had the, the the mate to this thing, so 
um, bought this brew house for a very, you know, for a very fair price and then proceeded to put it together. It was a three vessel system. It had a mash ton, a mash conversion vessel. Um, it had a louder tub and then it had a kettle whirlpool. And, um, so we installed it, but when we installed it, like I knew I wanted to build out, I'd done some work. I, I published a technical paper in the master brewers back in I don't know, mid nineties, maybe about how you design breweries for expansion possibilities and use those, some of those principles, um, for putting it in. So, you know, we were ready to go. Like when it was time to, to grow, we had the space, you know, the physical space to do it. So what, you know, what did we put in the, well, the, the you know, the next piece of, of, of equipment that we, we put in was a whirlpool, you know, you know, right now, when we first started up, I want to say it was something like four hours and four and a half hours, something like that between brews to get this through. And, you know, I had three brewers each working, uh, you know, first, second, third shift and was, you know, time to make more beer. So we put a whirlpool in and we cut the cycle time and then, and then, Oh, you know what? Maybe we put in, uh, you know, another, another vessel, another vessel. And we ended up with the system as it eventually was dressed out, um, ended up with, um, you know, all the milling equipment, mash conversion vessel the mash conversion vessel would send it to either the the east or the west louder tub that louder tub would then go to a, a, a like a holding vessel like a little it was not um a pre-run tank per se but you know kind of pre-run tank just to make up some extra time then it would flow into a heating kettle and that in that heating kettle we'd get the wort up to temperature and that had a very unique boiling system and then when it was time to boil the beer, what was unique about that? Um, well, it was an external calandria. It was like shaped like a like a giant corkscrew inside of a steam chest, so that you would turn on a pump. It would it would take liquid, you know, the wort from this vessel, put it through a pump, put it through this corkscrew, steam heated corkscrew, and then eject it back into the vessel again. And it was you know it was ripping through there, um, which you know I think about wort dynamics and what we're trying to do in terms of building large structures of protein that we're then going to be able to efficiently pull out in the whirlpool. And, you know, by ripping it through there, we're going to just be tearing apart these structures that we're working very hard to build. So, you know, though that doesn't really hurt it as it is heating up, it would hurt it as it's boiling. So on the boiling side, you know, when it then moves to the boiling kettle, we looked at, you know, trying to be as gentle as possible and as versatile as possible in handling that wort. And what we ended up with was this sort of mishmash of a close coupled external calandria. So think about a shell and tube heat exchanger bolted onto the bottom of a, of a vessel. And by setting up the piping in a way, we were able to um, move all the wort through the boiling surfaces with no pump energy. So what they you know call thermosiphon pretty gentle um and then it would uh you know would move through there get heated up and then it would rise up through the liquid column and what that allowed us to do was you know number one we could boil with a huge variety of of kettle volumes because you know sometimes we're brewing expedition stout and other times we're brewing you know oarsman or or light pilsner or whatever and you want to be able to you know to be able to to make all of those um various um brews in a way that's pretty efficient and there was some pretty cool engineering that went into it. We ended up doing like computer modeling on it. And it was, it was, it was in the end, it was patentable technology that we, we just put in the public domain because 
you know, we're brewers, we're not engineers, and, and you know, it's just sort of our main revenue source. Um, so, uh, so pre-run kettle, or heating kettle, boiling kettle, whirlpool, and then out. And in the end, I remember the final year we were, we were, we built out a new brew house that um, we can run 200 barrels on. This was a 50 barrel brew house. But in that final year, we did something like, we shipped something like 174,000 barrels off of a 50 barrel system, which works out to something like 4,000 suds. Uh, or, you know, we were brewing at a rate of like 16 a day. So like, a, you know, a week with 100 brews, yeah, whatever. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was crazy town. It was like, don't break. You know, when we finally shut that thing down, I thought right, it was going to be like right. the, you know, the car at the end of the Blues Brothers when like, you know, they close the door and just the full thing just falls apart. I was like, that's what's going to happen here. And, and uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a really good brew house um, and, uh, you know, but it, but it develops some interesting and unique stuff that we still hold on to, you know, to this day. I've now got a little tiny, you know, 12 barrel pilot system with that same sunken deep tube calandria. Um, that, you know, that's kind of like our technology. It's kind of a goofy thing. So what, what did you replace it with? And, uh, and, and obviously, you know, when you're making that much beer, you've got to, uh, find an even more productive way. And I, you, you're now even double where you were when you left that system at this point, right? Yeah. So the, so that 50 barrel system, you know, this is the last year we made just shy of a half million barrels out the door. Wow. Um, so we put in, I think it was 2012, we built a new brew house, which was a 200-barrel brew house. Went and talked to all the major players, kind sure, of showed them sure. what we were looking to do. And in the end, um, GEA Hoopman was who was, you know, was going to be the partner for us, and I'm very happy with that. Um, so we run that 200-barrel system. We still run that 50-barrel system, and um, you know, those differ by a factor of four. And when we put in a new pilot system last year, or 2018, I guess, um, we we put it in as a quarter of the size of the 50 barrel. So we've got the ability to like scale up by, by multiplying by fingers, you know, by, by four. Um, cause, cause we, it's easy math. Yeah, exactly. I can do that. <laughs> um, um, so I mean that, you know, those, those systems are, are, right. are just fantastic right now. Right. So you all have, um, you know, been engaged in a kind of process of innovation. You know, one of the beers you guys released uh, recently was Bell's Official. Uh, you know, you guys are mass producing a hazy IPA. And I'm only bringing this up because we're drinking some hazy IPA here. And, you know, I, I went through that normal process of, hey, what, what beer is, is John Mallon going to want to drink while we're here? And naturally, you know, the thought is, oh, Pilsner. You know, every brewer wants to drink Pilsner. And you threw me for a loop when you was like, hey, let's drink something hoppy and hazy. Um, you know, it floored me. And now, now I had to, I just struggled to, you know, to find some for us to drink. Um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, brewing that on the kind of scale that you brew, because certainly building something like, uh, haze stability and, you know, malt character and, you know, kind of producing the kind of volume of hops that you have to do for this kind of thing, making sure that those fermentations using this kind of yeast at that kind of scale, brewing in a 200 barrel brew house. Um, I mean, these are all sorts of different kinds of challenges that, uh, you know, compared to what most brewers that are brewing these, uh, these kinds of styles at much smaller scales are facing. Talk to me a little bit about that kind of, um, you know, production challenge of brewing, hazy stable beer at that kind of scale 
Yeah, well, you know, it's it's it is it's funny, you know, this the 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 haze the haze craze that's gone on, like, oh my god, haze. You know, when I came to Bell's, by far the largest brand was Oberon, which is hazy. It's true. It's <laughs> so true. it's so, so you have some experience doing some, this. You know, it's like and it's like, hey, hazy beers in. Okay, right. Um, so we've had, you know, we had certainly had uh, exp- right, right. experience or some um, focus on that over time. Um, building in the sort of haze stability, I think, is really interesting. And I will tell you that the for us, you know, it's a whole different game to make hazy beer and then to make hazy beer and ship it across the country because you know what's it how is it moving through the marketplace how do you assure that and that's an important part because you know eventually you know until we find the anti-gravity disc to cement on the bottom of every package <laughs> you know these are physical forces um yeah, yeah you know i think that the haze thing um my, you know like i come from a i come from a uh, my lineage is about technical um, professors. So, uh, you know, prof- university professors of chemistry, of biochemistry, of biology, of chemical engineering. Like this is this was the family business. And my grandfather, who was like sort of a huge expert on sugar crystallization, was a physical chemist. And physical chemistry has to do th- with things like stuff settling out of solution. And so knowing just like here are the primary physical forces that are going to want to make beer drop bright, you know, um, that it, w- it was, was really interesting to look at this, to figure out, you know, like, how do you do this? How do you maximize the ability for these beers to stay um, consistent and hazy? Um, I will tell you that our lab team, which includes, um, you know, some PhDs, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of people <laughs> working on this. Um, sure. I think sure. I gave, you know, Andy Farrell is one of the, well, you know, he's our innovation manager, brewing innovation manager, fantastic brewer, like really super technical. And I think that when we were doing that, it about killed him. <laughs> you know, it was, he did yeoman's work on making great beer and, and we're very happy with where it's at, but some of this is about how the, you know, what are the raw material selection? Right. Um, God, I wish, you know, like right now you go to the brew house and I'll tell you, you know, you throw some oats in, you know, you throw some oats in your beer, no big deal. Well, doing that at like brew after brew after brew at the 200 barrel scale, like you got, you know, like we care about our brewers and it's like, how do we do this in a way that we're not just killing them, opening bags and dumping oats in or, or whatever else, you know? Um, that's, you know, that's that, even that becomes a bit of a challenge. Sure. Sure. So what do you solve for that? What? Do you, do you have a, what? huh? Huh? <laughs> and this what are you is, talking and about? this is where John Mallet gets cagey <laughs> yeah. and avoids the question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we did, I mean, we, sure, sure. I mean, you know, everything, you know, there's, there's a whole host of things that are out there than uh, yeah, that, yeah. you know, I think that. Some of the work that I think has been really important for us has been looking at like some of the stuff like John Paul May, okay, um, has done, and this is about um, the small elements in hops that are getting into beer and how they're staying in there, and how do you maximize that? Um, so I think that there's some clues certainly there. Talking to, you know, it's funny. Um, again, we make wheat beer that's hazy, and it's not you know it's a different wheat beer than the German Weizen beer. 
we talked to the Germans, you know, they know how to make hazy Weizenbeer. You know, a lot of those beers are not, they are Hefeweizens, but they might not have, the yeast is not what causes the haze. It's protein. One of the ways they do it is through this thing called protein cracking, which is they would send uh, a beer with, uh, you know, some protein in it, certainly, through a heat exchanger, um, through a through a, a flash pasteurizer and just, you know, kind of nuke it. And it will cause a, a permanent haze. Now, that's a great idea, except for the fact that, you know, if you're making hazy hoppy beers <laughs> and the and the haze is an indicator, right, visual right. indicator for the for the beer lover <clears throat> that the beer is, is gonna be hoppy, and that's the kind of thing that just destroys hop flavor. So, you know, looking at that, looking at you know, all kinds of <clears throat> I'll tell you, <clears throat> at one point I went down and talked to people who make stuff like rum chata, which is again, you know, you look at rum chata and I've never drank it. I've seen people drink it, but I don't want to drink it. Um, and that stuff has got this milky opalescence. Milk, right? So these are, you know, milk has got um, suspension in it that allows it to be hazy. These are some of the, these are all some of the same physical forces, but what they're acting on are different. So again, I'm being a little, you know, I'm not, not giving away everything, but... <laughs> I'll tell you, it was quite a journey. No, I uh, I imagine it was. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about that. You know, the malt components in these beers, uh, if you will. I'm, you know, I'm curious about that. I think you know we focus on hops varieties a lot. We focus on you know how many times you're dry hopping and what kind of dry hopping loads. You know, we're talking about uh, you know, and I imagine you probably see it too with with the way that you dry hop these beers. You know, a little bit of that hops creep and, uh, you know, some additional refermentation with the enzymatic activity from those kinds of hops. Um, you know, but, but you know, I would love to hear from your perspective, like, how you build a malt base for some of these hazy beers and then how you deal with some of these other, uh, you know, production concerns that come with these beers. Yeah, so um, so on the malt base, I think it's the, I think it's some of these other adjuncts are very important to put in there. Um, you know, beer by itself wants to clear, um, you know, a barley, a barley beer wants to clear. I mean, that's the reason why Germans lagered beer, right? Because it, it got clear and beautiful. Um, so the other components, you know, whether that is um, oats or other cereal grains that are in there, that's important. Um, I don't, I think the yeast is important. You know, we see some pretty interesting stuff with, with that. Um, Are you all public about what yeast you use in this? No. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. We play. We play around a little bit. All right. right? Um, all right. Um, Are you using what people might suspect you would use? No. In? You're not. No. Okay. No. Um, how's that for double confusing? Right. I'm just gonna keep tell, keep telling you no. Okay. Um, and then um, what else was I gonna say? So no London L three or Conan on this one. So then the yeah then the hops are um, you know getting the hops in you know you know that's important. How you handle the beer, getting it um, you know like getting it into package because again once right. the, once it's sitting in that in that tank, you know like what does that sequence look like and we aggressively manage that. I mean we're pretty good with managing. Um, process timelines because time is a variable uh, for like things like too hearted. So sure. again, managing that absolutely very important in, in terms of getting it out there in, in, in a stable way. So 
We still didn't talk about mall com- uh, character in that whole beer. Well, What's I, your goal for mar- mall character in a in the hazy beer? Well, I mean, if you had a if you had a beer that was just you know was all hop, you know any beer that's all hop is kind of bland and boring to me. You need something to to play with there. You need. I, I really think the beer doesn't really come together until you've got um, you know right water chemistry, you know great yeast expression and 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 consistent great yeast expression. Um, you know, and then the malt sits sitting behind those hops. Um, you know, I, we've all we've all steeped hops in water, and you taste that, and you're like, time for the rotary tongue scraper to <laughs> reset the old palate. Sure, sure. Um, and and so you know, I mean, malt is you know as as was said you know hundred years plus ago, malt is the soul of beer. I mean, this is malt is where all of your 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 body, your foam, your alcohol, you know, like. All of these CO two, you know, all of these things that define beer come from malt. You know, it may not be the the flashy one, but it's absolutely imperative to have it. And you know, if you have something you know on a malt that's that's pretty bland in flavor or overly aggressive uh, in enzymatic activity, then I, I just don't see that the the, the beer is going to be good, and especially in these hazy beers. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the world, in the broader world of craft beer, in the broader world of craft brewing, um, what excites you these days? What is you know getting you know making your spidey sense tingle? And you know what kind of keeps you moving forward and pushing through this? You've been in this game a long time. You know you've seen a lot of phases of this. Yeah, certainly you have every right to be jaded by it, but you're clearly not. Um, what is it that uh, you know kind of keeps you interested, intrigued, you know, and keeps you going back at this uh, day after day? You know, I just look at the beers that continue to come out. You know, there's a huge variety and range. And you know, you think about you know five years ago, if you had talked to me about some unknown yeast from Norway, <laughs> right? I'd be like, what? Quake and. You know, sure. I mean, these sure. are the kinds of things that are like, holy crap! Let's 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 get all over this. Check this out. You know, so these are, you know, th- th- you know, it's it's surprising to me that you th- sort of think like, well, everything must have been discovered by now, but it's not. Um, I think that you know, the, the you know, sort of the hop aromas. I think about the ability to apply genetic tools to breeding for you know any of our raw materials. That's super exciting. Um, you know, you look at you look at things that are happening. Um, overseas and the manifestations of, um, you know, of of how beer is being approached. Um, you go to Brazil, and you've got these fantastic weird woods and fruits you've never heard of, and brewers who are fearless at throwing them into. We're going to make sour beer with this, and you're like, you know, not all of those beers are come from a technical background, a technical excellent background. But people are pushing the boundaries of like what is you know how beer can taste, and I think that is just super interesting. So you know, going and and, and turning over stuff and seeing what what other flavors we can get in beer. I will put the caveat that it needs to be safe. Uh, you know, we, we have as brewers we have a, a, a duty. We are duty bound and honor bound to make sure that what we're producing is safe for our consumers. Um, so these are the things that, that really light me up. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, John Mallet, thanks for joining me on the uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. It is such a pleasure to come by. 
drink a couple beers and I would normally ask where people find you if you know if you want to learn more about the brewery but your bells bells brewery if they want to learn more about what you do in particular is there a place to find you uh, specifically out there on the interwebs uh, I'm just I mean I'm just I'm I'm like everywhere you know I do work with the Brewers Association yeah. the Master Brewers yeah. the you know American Malting Barley Association Hop Quality Group if it has to do with technical brewing I'm all over it Kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. G&D Chillers is ready to meet your challenge. SS Brewtech's team have strong and diverse functional backgrounds. And Second Kitchen provides food experiences to keep customers in your tap room. John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers, man. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.